Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you've recently received a couple of questions from listeners that you said you get asked fairly often, but you think it's been a number of years since you addressed them on the program, so you would like to do so again today. Yeah, Scott, I always appreciate it when a listener makes the effort to write me with a question. And even if it's not a unique one, if one person has a question about something related to the creation account, there are many others who have the same question. And I think it's good to try and keep people as informed about the meaning of Scripture as possible. And another thing I'd like to point out about the two questions we're going to consider today is that I commend anyone who pays close attention to the words of Scripture and by so doing have questions about how one statement relates to another because it demonstrates they take seriously the concept of biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Well, yes. If a person doesn't have the expectation that there can be no errors or contradictions in the Bible, then if they come across some passages that do seem to be in conflict with known truth or with other statements in the Bible, it will have little impact on their assessment of what it means. Mm -hmm. They'll just accept that there's a mistake somewhere. Or another approach can be, they will not hesitate to simply twist the meaning to fit their current desires or expectations. That practice is what we're seeing in various quarters of the modern quote-unquote church when it comes to, for example, what the Bible states about sexual immorality, clear statements about gender, as well as the sinfulness of lust, fornication out of wedlock, adultery, and homosexuality are being reinterpreted by religious leaders who seek followers that want to be affirmed in their sinful choices rather than judged according to God's Word. Dr. Scripture, I don't mean to take us too far afield from the questions you're wanting to address today, but you mentioned clear biblical statements about gender. What do you mean by that? What I mean, Scott, is the Word of God is clear about the existence and meaning of human genders. Most people have probably heard now where in some circles they define, oh, I don't know, seven or eight or even 10 or 15 different genders a person can identify as. That's a lot of bathrooms. Well, frankly, I don't claim to know what they all can possibly mean. But what I do claim is the Bible is clear. In the first place, it says that God, the Creator, is responsible for the origin of human beings. In fact, He made them in His own image. And in the second place, the Bible says that God, the Creator, made man, that is, the human species, male and female. Let's read how clearly it's stated, Scott. Read Genesis 1:27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the first part of verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Two genders, whose first given purpose by their creator was to procreate, which can only be accomplished through the coming together of the seed of a male and a female. Anyway, Scott, we have gotten a little removed from what I want to talk about today. Although procreation is very much related to the question, both questions actually, that I want to answer. But as I pointed out, within Christian circles anyway, the issue of the meaning of Scripture and taking it seriously, as opposed to being cavalier with the meaning of God's Word, is very important. And those who do take the meaning of every word of Scripture seriously are to be commended and encouraged in their pursuit of the truth as it's revealed in God's Word. 
Well, Dr. Scripture, I can't help but make the connection between what we're seeing in what is called modern Christianity and what Paul warned Timothy would happen someday. In 2 Timothy 4.3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I fully agree, Scott. In fact, the context of that passage is applicable to our current situation in the extreme. Let's start reading at verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, it's fairly recent in church history that the interpretations of sexual immorality have been getting twisted by some of its leaders. But it's been occurring in the teachings on origins for many decades. And so I would also apply this passage to the biblical doctrine of creation. In an attempt to harmonize the Bible with, quote, modern scientific thinking, unquote, several denominations and large numbers of churches have replaced what the Bible clearly states about special creation with various forms of evolutionary theory. Yet, the more we objectively evaluate the credibility of evolutionary claims, the more those proposals resemble myth. So, Scott, let's consider the questions we received from our listeners, both whom obviously take the words of Scripture seriously and are wanting to discern its truth and meaning. Well, the first letter was from Andrew Lankford. He did not say where he was from, but he wrote, I just found your site and I truly appreciate the way you look at Scripture. The question or answer I was searching for is this. Was Cain Adam and Eve's first child? I say no, because the Bible says that as a consequence of the sin committed, Eve's birth pains would be increased, which begs the question, increased from what? If there were no previous births or standard of birth pain, how would this increase be a punishment? Would she even know to what God was referring? First, I want to thank Andrew for his question and comment. And now let's look at the passage he's referring to and also point out he's applying the meaning of the specific words in it very carefully, which is excellent. The verses are in Genesis chapter 3, where God is pronouncing judgment on Satan, Eve, and Adam for their sin. In verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, Andrew is referring to the words, greatly multiply your pain. The understanding is, to greatly multiply something, there had to be some to begin with. That is, some pain. So, how would Eve know the difference if she'd never experienced childbirth before? Well, let's dig a little deeper into the words being translated. Greatly multiply and pain. First, the translation greatly multiply portrays the intensity of the text. The Hebrew word translated there is rabah, and it's repeated in Hebrew, rabah, rabah, giving the meaning great intensity. Now, rabah is translated many different ways. 
all with the idea of increasing something. So increase or multiply is the sense, and repeating the word stresses that sense all the more. However, the truth of that statement is not at all dependent on Eve's understanding of what giving birth to a baby was like based on previous experience. God was communicating to her that the original experience of childbirth would not have been painful or so laborious. But now, because she disobeyed, it would take great labor, even pain. It's interesting that the same word that's translated pain there is used by God when he tells Adam he will now have to toil, that would be labor, to get food from the ground. That Hebrew word is itzabon. And it occurs only three times in the entire Old Testament. In the New American Standard Bible, it's translated pain when God speaks to Eve and toil when God speaks to Adam. Then the third time this word occurs, it is also translated toil, and that's when Lamech names Noah. It says in Genesis 5.29, go ahead and read it, Scott. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So it sounds like it would be legitimate to translate what God said to Eve, I will greatly multiply your toil in childbirth. Another way to say that is your labor in childbirth. Good observation, Scott. And perhaps that's the way we should understand it, in the sense that originally, childbirth would have required some labor on the woman's part. I mean, how can we imagine it wouldn't have taken some effort to push that baby through the birth canal, sin or no sin in the world? But because of sin, now it would require a lot more labor, even to the point of pain, just like it was going to take a lot of toil or labor for man to bring food from the ground. I never perceived the symmetry between the two punishments like that before. Neither had I, Scott, not until I studied the use of that Hebrew word for toil or pain used in Genesis 3.16 for Eve and 3.17 for Adam. And so, does the meaning of what God said to Eve require that she already experienced a pain-free birth? No, it does not. God was telling her that when she does experience childbirth, it will be much harder than it was originally intended to be. And that's why it's called labor. Yeah, labor pains. Okay, Dr. Scripture, it's interesting that our second question is similar to the question, was Cain the firstborn, that you just addressed. It deals with people who are not identified specifically in the Bible as being the offspring of Adam and Eve. And this is a question you get fairly often. It's from Margaret Price. She also did not indicate where she's writing from. But she asked, if the whole world was derived from Adam and Eve in Genesis 4.14, how was anyone going to kill Cain if his family were the only people alive? And I'm not certain, but when she says his family were the only people alive, I'm assuming she means Adam's family, which, of course, would include Cain. Well, that's how I take it, Scott. And what Margaret is asking is similar to the question, where did Cain's wife come from? The idea being there must have been people who were not Cain's relatives around, both to provide him a wife and to be a threat to him when he was banished from the land of Eden. What most people don't realize, however, is how long a period of time had expired from the time Cain was born to when he was banished from Eden. Assuming that Cain was the firstborn human, and that is both textually accurate and theologically consistent with the rest of Scripture, Cain was close to 130 years old when he killed Abel. 
We know this because Genesis 4:25 and 5:3 reveal that Seth was born to replace Abel, and Adam was 130 years old when they had Seth. Scott, read Genesis 4:25. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then Genesis 5.3 says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So even if it was a couple of years after creation before Cain was born, it was a long time after Cain was born that he killed Abel and was forced to leave Eden. Now granted, this is an assumption. But the idea that Adam and Eve had no children after Cain except Abel until they had Seth to replace Abel, which spanned a period in the neighborhood of 125 plus years, is just hard to accept. So Cain surely would have had other siblings. From among whom Cain took a wife. Correct. And they were siblings who also would have been having children of their own. And they would have heard about what Cain did to Abel, and to prevent those inclined to vengeance, God nipped it in the bud, so to speak. He put a mark on Cain and stated the warning that God would avenge Cain's murder sevenfold. So, the simple answer is, the people Margaret is asking about would have all been descendants of Adam and Eve. In other words, Cain's kin. And the place that we need to look for answers about gender is the Bible. In Genesis 5-2, God repeats what he did when he created the human race. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And that's not what I say. That's what scripture says. 